0: So you have a lot of actually Protestants that try to say, oh no, we believe in the the real presence. We just don't believe in the real corporeal presence or the real bodily presence. And I start to get a little worried that maybe that's not enough if we're actually going to take the Eucharist to be doing something. Even if that is just a Thanksgiving offering, the content of that offering must be the body of Christ in some, some unique way, in order for us to follow the logic of Hebrews.
1: Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin and this is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we seek to bring simplicity out of theological and historical complexity. And today we are certainly getting into complexity, but man, does my guest do a great job of breaking it down into easily understandable nuggets, even if at times it does remain to be heady conversations. We're talking about sacrifice and the metaphysics of the Eucharist, which has to be one of the most exciting titles I've put out in a while. It is a far-ranging conversation going from background to sacrifice to how the Old Testament sacrifices are summed up into the Eucharist, as well as what Christ is currently doing in intercession. But then how do we make sense of that? Like what metaphysical uh, frameworks do we need to have Christ interceding in heaven, but also being present in the Eucharist? We somehow cram all of that into an hour, and I think you're really going to enjoy it but first i wanted to say a huge thank you to my patrons and if you're hearing this this means that you're missing out because if you're a patron you watch these videos ad free and you watch them early and if you want to have those perks plus access to a patron-only discord server a gospel simplicity inside circle book club where we go through classic christian text you want discount codes on merch and insider access to all types of fun stuff go ahead over to patreon.com gospel simplicity to take advantage of some of those fun perks and be a part of helping this channel keep going and growing but with all that being said here is the video well today i am joined by cody warta cody warta is a graduate of the moody bible institute he also holds an mdiv from the seattle school of theology and psychology as well as an mlit from saint andrews as if that wasn't enough degrees he is currently studying uh, for his phd at saint andrews as well he is married with two daughters and they live there in scotland cody thanks so much for joining me today yeah thank you for having me this is an absolute pleasure i believe you are the first moody grad that i've had on the channel so there you have it that is exciting that's a
0: title to to own
1: yes i'm sure that's the that's the proudest of all your degrees um, sure sure it's <laughs> the one up on the wall anyway yep. uh cody i i'm really excited to have you here today we're gonna be talking a bit about sacrifice and the metaphysics of the Eucharist, which has to be one of the most mm-hmm. exciting titles that I've put on a video in a while. And I I want to jump into that here in a second, but first I wanna talk about your theological journey from Moody Bible Institute, which for those who aren't familiar with it, it's the school I went to. And I think, I mean, you could broadly call it like a conservative evangelical Bible college, something like that. Um, from there to a PhD candidate at St. Andrew's studying the Eucharist and arguing for a view of
0: transubstantiation talk to me a bit about that journey sure sure it's been a, a long one uh it's a, a bit of a funny experience to recollect because i don't see it as one that is one that had at any moment a a clear division where i was on a train towards the uh, world of evangelicalism and then i departed that train in many ways i still find myself on that train today uh, I just might define terms slightly differently. Uh, and so I still beto- bestow the, the title of evangelical with pride in so much as we mean that uh, Christ has come, died, given his body for us. And because of that, we evangelize and tell others about that. Still very much on board with that. But nonetheless, I've, I've done some slight theological adjustments to uh, my own categories, if you will since graduation at moody even since the time that i was at moody and i i I look at that as a a journey that actually started while i was there uh towards my last year i had actually accidentally done a whole bunch of credits for my degree that uh i completed too early and my last term uh if for those who aren't familiar i'm not sure if the, the structure still works this way today but uh, my I had to take my last term, but I only had like one class that I actually had to be enrolled in, and that one class was the incarnation of God. And that was pretty pivotal in my understanding of not only who Christ is and what it means that he became incarnate uh, and what that has historically mean, meant, but it also uh, really a, a quench or pardon me, really quenched a thirst that I had in my life at that time for knowing how to commune with Christ, knowing how he wanted to give his body for us and understanding kind of my first uh, bit of sacramentology at that point. So, so Moody was actually more or less the introduction into a, a life of sacramental worship and all of those things, which some people find surprising. But when I was there, it was it was a very natural dialogue to have because, of course, we were constantly asking the question of what does it mean to know Christ and love Christ? And so the sacraments became really core towards the end of that time and since I had done all my coursework already really up until that point I really just sat in this theology course I had like a I think a a swimming course or something like that which was more or less uh pretty relaxed uh and gave myself even some time to think about some of these things and I chewed on it I also got married directly after uh this as, as far as like a few days after graduation so not uh dissimilar from yourself Austin so having those two paired together and really thinking about what it meant to, to be married, what marriage as a whole meant as a framework for understanding Christ's relationship with the church. And that kind of started bumping up my eschatology. I started having, okay, if this is how we partake of Christ in the church, and this is how we come to know Christ, what does this mean for who the church is? And all these questions started getting raised higher and higher and higher, uh, right before my MDiv, which I did at a, uh, fairly, uh, liberal, Um, uh, school and was challenged in some senses and kind of ping pong back and forth theologically for a little while and then ended up realizing no I think actually I want to be in a uh, setting that is very devoted not just to sacramental and liturgical lifestyle but also to what the faith has traditionally meant Um, and so in that sense the title take on a conservative position there
1: yeah that's fascinating and there's there's so much there that i want to hit on and i think you mentioned in one of the calls kind of prior to this as we were just talking about what we might talk about that did you grow up conservative baptist and then you had like a a pentecostal kind of phase in there as well just to continue fleshing that out do i have that correct
0: sure sure as far as protestants go i'm pretty much a mutt (laughs) i grew up in a nazarene church which is springs from the holiness movement. That's where I was originally baptized when I was about five years old. And my parents had a lot of affiliations in uh, quite conservative Baptists. The elementary school that I went to was part of an Assemblies of God church. And the high school that I went to was part of a Methodist church. And I got quite heavily involved with uh, some of the neo charismatic movements in uh, Northern California. Uh, things like Bethel church all of that kind of stuff that splits down from there and then when, when I moved to Chicago I became involved in a Pentecostal church while I was there uh, I also attended Moody which is a bit all over I was at RA at one point and I was uh watching over uh one of my guys was a Lutheran and one of my guys was a Roman Catholic actually at Moody and I got <laughs> got to try to facilitate those as a as a Pentecostal myself and I'm like I don't I don't know how to do all of this so I I have had a really weird Protestant uh background as far as uh, my own position in church yeah
1: well that is the perfect background so far as i'm concerned for gospel simplicity because i think people will be able to relate to that in so many ways and i i think it's fascinating and i imagine that it allows you to appreciate uh the the diversity of the church in different ways and be able to talk to more people right to to be able to talk to a lutheran and a catholic especially now having you know progressed on that journey further and to be able to see where people are coming from from different positions and maybe speak into it from some of your own experience so that's that's really exciting i could talk about a lot of that all day but i do want to jump into these ideas of metaphysics of the eucharist and sacrifice so i think we're going to start with those two key terms I think maybe the first that's important to talk about is metaphysics. It's a word that I think a lot of people would be like, yeah, I know what that means. But if you ask them to tell you, they might struggle with it. But it sounds fancy and they, you know, it it sounds nice, right? It's good to put in a title. But when we talk about metaphysics, like what are we actually talking about?
0: That's a really good question. And I think it's, it's, it's important to recognize because we do tend to use a word like metaphysics and any philosophically charged word sometimes in different ways, depending on who we're talking to and depending on what branch of philosophy we're talking about. So when I talk about metaphysics, I mean it in a a, um, relatively neutral way. Uh, I think of after Aristotle's physics, his his book on what is physical, we might think of uh, things like moving bodies and stuff like that. He writes uh, the after physics or the metaphysics. And that is basically the sets of questions that he had to either allocate to essentially footnotes or he realized he needed to address separately when he was uh, when he was working on those, those books, those, those pieces of literature. And I, I like to think of the questions that he came up with could be framed in a series of questions as far as like, what are the things that exist? Or if I was to have to count the items in a room, what would I count? And now that first sounds like a relatively easy task. I'm currently in a room where there's um, some plants behind me, a wall, uh, the desk that I'm sitting at, but I might have to also answer, okay, well, do I need to count things like colors? Uh, Is there yellowness in the room? Is there whiteness in the room? Is there there greenness in the room? Do those count as things? Do I need to count um, individual leaves on these plants? Or can I count the the plant as a whole? Is Is that different or distinct? Uh, Even the plants behind me, if you see that there's two of them and they're both exactly the same. I think they're eucalyptus or some species of that. And would that be two distinct things or two things that are kind of in the same category? Uh, Do we need to count the actual being of those things, the fact that they exist and not the fact that other things exist? So when you start breaking it down into, I think we have a lot of intuitive perspectives as far as what we would count. But you can also have a lot of questions as far as why don't we count this? Uh, Do we count the numbers of things? Is two in the room that I'm sitting in? Is 500 in the room that I'm sitting in? Most of us would intuitively say no, but there's a good question as far as asking why. And even more at a a fundamental level, what makes a thing a thing? Uh, What makes it? Can we talk about non-things and things that don't have existence and and, uh, all of those? This ends up becoming really important when we talk about Christ's presence in the Eucharist, of course, because it it becomes a question that we want to frame along this line of if Christ is present, what does that even mean? What does it mean that if we want to say that his substance is present but not his accidents, as we'll go on in a little while, is that actually a meaningful sentence or are we just kind of babbling nonsense as many, uh, especially reformers, kind of wanted to say, no, this, this doesn't actually mean anything. Uh, and even some of the the neo-scholastics wanted to say something like that. So that's why it becomes important, and that's kind of a brief intro into some of those questions.
1: This episode is sponsored by christianministryedu.org. Chances are if you watch my videos, you love theology, and maybe you've even thought of pursuing a degree in it, but it can be difficult knowing where to start, which degrees to look at, which schools, and how you're going to fit it into your busy schedule. That's where christianministryedu.org comes in. It's a one-stop shop for degree, and career guidance, and it is structured to help you find schools and career paths that match your spiritual mission. With program and career guides that span across Christian leadership and ministry positions, you'll be able to make an informed decision about your specific calling to serve. Learn more about how you can gain the tools to pursue your faith-based future today at christianministryedu.org. I love that, and I love how you already kind of helped segue that a bit because I think there is that that really easy transition of okay it might seem just abstract to ask like how many things are in this room and and how do we mm-hmm. count them and that maybe just seems like something that people with too much time on their hands worry themselves with but then when you look at say the altar and a church right mm-hmm. and you you see that that bread or, and then you're tasked with asking what is there and, and how yeah. many and in what way all of a sudden you're going mm-hmm. to need these kind of deep metaphysical resources upon which to draw from so I think that's really important. We're going to just put a pin in that for just one second. We'll circle back to sure. it. Um, but another important aspect of what we're going to be talking about today is sacrifice. And I think these two things are going to mutually inform each other. It, the, you know, Our metaphysical assumptions are going to say something about what we believe about sacrifice and perhaps vice versa. Um, mm-hmm. But when we talk about sacrifice here in the Eucharist specifically what is it that we mean? You know, I I just recently did a video on sacrifice where we talked a decent amount, a bit about the Old Testament background and then sacrifice more as this kind of like theological category, not specific to the Eucharist, but in terms of just our approach to this idea of sacrifice. And I think this kind of helps us segue from that into something that's a little more specific, even if there (laughs) might be some differences in how you guys would approach it, which is uh, fine with me as well. But so...
0: Eucharistic sacrifice, what does that mean? Sure, it's an interesting question because as far as I'm aware, I believe most if not all of the reformers completely rejected the idea that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. And they had pretty decent reasons for doing so. Uh, their logic said something like this, if the Eucharist is a sacrifice, that means the atonement is not complete in the work of Christ. It seems like we have to do something. And since we don't wanna say that, it must mean that the eucharist is not a sacrifice uh so a bit of a um kind of back and forth there and i i I see the the concern uh that being said i think it's a bit mislabeled as far as uh what a sacrifice really means and especially when we fast forward all the way to our current day and our position now the way that we use the term sacrifice is is hugely misunderstood Uh, So I think this is especially prevalent in English, but you also actually even see it in contemporary Hebrew. They use the term sacrifice a little bit more how we do now in English, which is, I think, fascinating how both those languages have kind of evolved together. And so it's important to helpful, or I think it's helpful, pardon me, to start with a uh, understanding of how we often misunderstand sacrifice. And so there's two ways that I think we do that. The first one is by simply associating sacrifice with slaughter. And you can see this most often in movies around like the 60s and 70s, when, when Satanism was kind of this, this big um, force in the culture. Uh, you can see this a little bit with like the latest season of Stranger Things. Uh, it's kind of funny, this this notion of sacrifice becomes one where it's primarily about killing an individual and maybe it has some effects beyond that. Uh, but really it's it's all about the, the, the blood and the gore and all that kind of stuff. Uh, As you talked about in your last uh, video on sacrifice, that is just, that's not really at all uh, what anyone from a more ancient Near Eastern background or really in the history of the world has, has understood sacrifice to be. Uh, And I'll get to why in just a moment. The other way that we, we misunderstand sacrifice is we talk about typically what it means for me to give up something. So I might say, oh, I sacrificed my time in order to help my wife. Well, in that sense, notice the focus is not on giving my wife some sort of gift. The focus is actually slightly shifted on me giving up something. And that's also not quite right. Uh, But both of those have an air of truth. And that what sacrifice, I think, is fundamentally is it's a series of rituals in which we give God gifts. And we give them to him under certain circumstances in order to have covenantal relationship with him. So the the main goal of sacrifice is like this top tier uh, focus would be on right relationship between God and the people of God. And the way that that's facilitated is often through a series, at least in the Levitical ritual system, is through a series of giving gifts uh, as a way of of keeping that covenantal relationship. And so we do this with people that we know and love all the time. We could imagine that, for instance, with my wife. it might be a common thing that I do if I start working too much, that I come home with flowers and I give her flowers and I say, I am sorry for working too much. You know, I've, I've been spending too much time in the office and I need to spend more time with you. After I do that a series of times, I might just come home with flowers and she's going to know exactly what that means. That doesn't mean that I don't say the words always, but it, it, there's, there's suddenly a, an understanding of what this gift signifies and even what I'm asking for in this gift. Similarly, I might bring her chocolate in order to say, I know you've been working really hard with our kids. And this is a way of saying, thank you. I'm thankful for all the work that you do. And so flowers represents just, I'm working too much. Chocolate would represent, thank you for all that you do with the kids. I might even bring home a bottle of wine to say, hey, I just miss you and I want to spend time with you. And we've been missing schedules lately. And let's you know, come together over this bottle of wine. And so now I have three different gifts and they have slightly different meanings. They have slightly different effects but the overall purpose is to give a gift so that i might have communion with my wife and that is kind of what the levitical ritual system does is it facilitates this in in a bit of a different way i don't want to push the analogy too hard but you have a series of different activities and they facilitate this relationship with god in many different ways that's necessary now the levitical ritual system is super interesting because you also have what we call calendric cycles or, or calendric depending on how you want to pronounce that things that we do on a daily basis things that we do on a yearly basis uh things that we do on a uh semi-annual basis there's there's things that just happen depending on the time of year it is and then there's things that you do given a set of circumstances that occur whether you're saying thank you god for protecting me on this sea voyage that i went on or I realize I sinned in a certain way, and my sin has actually defiled the temple. And so I'm giving you a gift in order to purify the temple and atone for my sin. That's what we call the sin offering, the hatah offering. And that's an important one for later as far as Hebrews is concerned, too. So there's all these different types of sacrifices. They all have this final goal, and they're all about giving gifts in order to establish this relationship with God. I think that's really important because I think we miss that really easily. Uh, in contemporary culture.
1: This video is brought to you in part by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is an organization of Christian counselors that exists to help you get the help you need. You can find them by going to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. And when you use that link, which you can find in the description down below, you will get 10% off your first month and they'll pair you up with a licensed mental health counselor in under 48 hours. Once you've been paired up with a counselor, you can reach them via instant message, phone call, video call, and more. I think you will really enjoy this, and I think it could be the first step on your journey to greater mental health. And mental health problems affect all of us, religious, non-religious, old, young, every demographic feels the weight of mental health. But there are resources available, and you don't need to go through this alone, which is why I encourage you to reach out to the amazing people at Faithful Counseling by using that link, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, and taking your first step towards healing and wholeness in your mental health. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I love the marriage analogy there to talk about kind of bringing that into the relationship dynamic there. And again, not to push it too far, but I think that's going to be helpful for people to understand. And also to see that as that becomes a ritual, that thing stands in for that motivation, right? Like that the flowers <laughs> represented that, hey, I'm sorry, I've been working too much. And I think when we remove ourselves so far from the context, it can become like, he's just randomly giving flowers. Like, what is this even about? And I think that's in part what we do with whether it's the Old Testament or just rituals that we're not familiar with, whether that's just in a different liturgical expression. So I think that's a really helpful place to start. Also, double points for getting a Stranger Things reference in there. I was right there with you. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> love
0: it. But I, it's, it's a problem because I do end up watching all of these current examples. Sorry to interrupt you. No. I, I watch all these shows and I, oh, they misunderstand sacrificing this way, this way, this way. Every now and then you get a good example and you're like... <sighs> yeah yeah
1: and i i can imagine your wife loves that my wife was watching a show on vacation rentals and i was like Ah, a bunch of people pr- some pr- supporting gentrification she's like i'm just trying to enjoy a show austin and yeah um in any case I-, I want to dive back in here and talk about that connection to hebrews because i think this is something that comes up a lot i think we see it with the reformers a bit as well but certainly and just kind of the reformed tradition or the protestant tradition at large one of the large kind of pushbacks towards a view of eucharistic sacrifice is to point to hebrews specifically i believe it's hebrews 10 and to say look it says that this you know on the cross christ gave his once for all sacrifice or it's good once and for all like why are you guys re-sacrificing jesus are you making his atonement null and void like you talked about a little bit there and my guess is that Part of that comes from a misunderstanding of what we mean by sacrifice. But could you kind of tie
0: those two ideas together for us? Sure, it's it's a complicated question with a series of different answers. So I will say that people have historically answered this in different ways. Uh, And I would say most, uh, to to draw from one particular tradition, most Roman Catholics today would answer this question in a way that's maybe slightly different from how I answer it. Although I have talked to a series of people that say, "Uh, I think what you're saying has merit and and I can say that as well too. So uh, there's a preface to say that people are gonna answer this question in different ways, even if they're going to affirm that Christ's work in the Eucharist is still a sacrifice of sorts. So as far as Hebrews 10 is concerned, uh, it's a really important passage because Hebrews as a whole frames Christ's work as this Yom Kippur sacrifice, the day of atonement. I was talking about the sacrifices that occur yearly. The day of atonement was a type of sacrifice, uh, I should say it was a it was an annual sacrifice that used a type of sacrifice. And the type of sacrifice it used was that sin offering that talked about that, what we call the hatat offering. And the logic of this goes something like, so if I sin in a certain way, not only do I need forgiveness, but I've also defiled the temple. And this is, this is obviously a Jewish understanding. And so that defilement is over time with a whole nation of people going to accrue in such a way that we need to cleanse the temple uh, and so that it is ritually pure again. Now we have to have a distinction between ritually pure and morally pure, because obviously there are some things that you can do to become ritually pure that have no distinction on what it means to be forgiven or something like that, such as washing your hands, washing your body, abstaining from sexual relations with your wife for a certain period of time, not touching the dead. All of these things are not quite sin issues, but they do become a big issue if you try to enter the presence of god or you try to offer a sacrifice a certain some certain sacrifices without this ritual cleansing and so what happens in these sin offerings and specifically in the day of atonement offering is you have the the high priest go into the holy of holies offer the sin offering and this this takes place with a goat and it actually takes place uh prior to when he goes into the holy of holies with two goats one goes out into the desert called the scapegoat the other, he takes the blood and, and brings it into the Holy of Holies so that way he can present it before the the, the throne of God. You know, the earthly throne of God is what that, the Ark of the Covenant is understood to be. We speculate that there might have been an understanding that, that the presence of God in, in some unique way existed between those two angels. We don't know if we should take that literally, if that was understood as far as, yes, this is exactly what it means for God to be locally present in a unique way. If that was understood a bit broader than that, or if this was understood merely as a a connection between what we think of as the earthly temple and the temple that Moses saw in his vision, which is a heavenly temple. So there's there's a couple ways to interpret that, but either way, they they would bring in the the blood, give it to the offer, and uh, give it to the altar, and therefore give the life of the animal as a gift, just like the roses or the chocolate to God. And God in return would cleanse the temple, cleanse the holy of holies forgive the people, and then the priest would exit, hands raised, and typically pronounce them to be completely forgiven. In this, uh, although you don't see this, you see this really clearly in a uh, second temple Judaism, is the priest would often pray for the people, uh, the Jewish people, and for the entirety of the world while he was in there offering this blood. Okay, so that's, that's a bit of a background. What Christ does, according to the author of Hebrews, as I read him, is he Descends into hell he gives his body as uh or pardon me he takes on the the sins of the people and brings it to the wilderness down there he ascends is resurrected uh so ascends from hell to earth is resurrected and uh now he no longer can die and so this gives him a really special advantage in that although christ uh can be king because he's born of the line of judah he was not born in the line of the Levi, so he can't be an earthly priest. He has to be a, another type of priest. And the only other one that we have awareness of is Melchizedek. We have that from Genesis and a little bit in Psalms. And there seems to be a tradition around this during Second Temple Judaism, which understood that Melchizedek can serve as the priest in a heavenly holy, uh, heavenly temple, pardon me, because he can never die. This is There's a huge interpretive framework around this that you kind of have to say, okay. Sure, Uh, and some people look at Genesis and they're like, I don't see that in Genesis so much. And that's fine, but it's definitely in Hebrews. (laughs) And so what Christ does is he ascends, now he can no longer die, and so he can take on this new order, not of Levi, but of Melchizedek, and he can offer his body as a gift. So he offers both the blood and the body to the Father. He presents himself, and this is the thing that he does once and for all. He ascends, presents himself, and gives his body and then he sits and begins offering prayers and petition for the people. And so what we should see from this is this is this movement down into hell, up into heaven and sitting and continuing to offer that. And so the thing that has happened once and for all is that he has given his body once and for all to the Father. But the thing that is not quite complete, and this is this is really interesting, is that he hasn't actually come out of the temple to pronounce that the people are forgiven. They are forgiven, but the ritual is not actually finished in that sense. And so some people will look at things like, oh, they'll be like, oh, it is finished. It's like, no, this is not quite uh, the way that we should understand it in the sense that yes, Christ's work is uh, done, but he's also still engaging in that uh, back and forth dynamic. And I think this is really, really good actually, because it allows us, if if anyone out there is like me, who as uh, a especially a young believer, I had difficulty seeing um, a relational dynamic between my offending Christ, my sinning against God and the forgiveness that he was offering because it was very much uh, something that all kind of already happened. And so although I was experiencing the sin for the first time, he was completely set apart from it uh, as far as it uh, almost already happened to him. Uh, and so it like almost wasn't an issue all of a sudden, but when I started reading it it along this lines, I, I realized, okay, yes, Christ has paid the price. He's offered his body already, but he still continues to intercede for those people as we sin, uh, and, and offer, uh, ritual purity, purity, offer moral purity, and, uh, allow us to have communion with god through this continual intercession which does continue so a slight distinction between those two when you get to hebrews 10 you're going to notice that it talks only about these hatat sacrifices too it talks only about sin offerings and sin sacrifices and this is a very specific type of sacrifice this one is like i said it's complete with the exception of the fact that he's still praying uh all other sacrifices though are more or less free game, so long as they are done in the way of the new covenant. Uh, So when I was talking about all those other types of sacrifices, we have what is called like the Todah sacrifice, specifically the Zavah Todah sacrifice, which is a daily Thanksgiving sacrifice that we usually do uh, in, in, in Jewish tradition. It was done, like I said, sometimes when you had a safe voyage at sea, or you went to battle safely, or you just wanted to thank God for something. And by the time of Second Temple Judaism, it occurred in such a way that the sac- there was a sacrifice and there was a bread and wine offering. And the sacrifice was an animal that was killed on an altar. And so long as the, the crust of the bread was finished being cooked uh, at the time of the death of the animal, you could eat the bread and drink the wine. And it was understood that in some way you were eating and drinking the animal. And you were communing with god while the priest was basically sacrificing this animal really fascinating stuff there uh and by the way this is referred to as the thanksgiving sacrifice eucharist eucharista uh, eucharisto all of which have to do with thanksgiving uh they don't use the same language always in some of the texts that you would expect them to so there's a bit of uh you have to be careful there but there's there's crossover you also have Uh, The the Talmud, the the sacrifice that's offered daily, usually with a a lamb. And that is given in the temple. We we see early Christians started to understand the Eucharist as a fulfillment of Malachi 1, where it says that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, uh, your name will be praised. It talks about giving sacrifices during this time. That was quickly interpreted as being the Eucharist because people were offering sacrifices during this time. None of these compete with Christ's presence at the right hand of the Father, offering a sin offering, but they do end up converging in a very unique way in that Christ is the content of the uh, the Yom Kippur sacrifice that He's offering, but He's also the content of the Eucharist and perhaps the content of the Talmud and 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 so all of these sacrifices have the same body, uh, the same blood. But they're fulfilled in different purposes. You're doing slightly different things. So to go back to my example of like my wife earlier, uh, let's say uh, you know God forbid she ended up dying, and uh, I wasn't visiting her grave as much as I wanted to. I might then bring her a uh, bunch of flowers and a box, uh, bring her grave, I should say, a bunch of flowers and a box of like chocolates with liqueur in them or something like that. And in this one motion, not only am I doing the thing that we normally would do when we set flowers at people's graves, but I might be signifying in some way, I'm sorry I haven't spent enough time with you lately. Thank you for all that you did. I would love to spend more time with you. So now I'm I'm integrating all the sacrifices. They're all slightly different things, but they, they converge in the content of the gift that I'm offering. Wow, that's really long-winded, but I think that might have answered your question.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think... And there's a couple follow up questions that I'd love to ask here. Let me think of what would be the most helpful. I, I think what it is, is just getting clarity on that idea. So is what you're saying that in the Eucharist, we have the Eucharist is not the Yom Kippur sacrifice. That has been once and for all completed, mm-hmm. minus the fact that the the prayers, the intercessions are ongoing and that the high priest, Christ in this case, hasn't come out of the temple. So far so mm-hmm. good. But what we see in the Eucharist is it's tying together kind of a multiplicity of other non-sin
0: offering Old Testament sacrifices. Is that fair? Yes. Yes, and especially in John, this becomes a big deal because there's a specific sacrifice that is tied to the Eucharist, which is the Passover. And by the way, the Passover is related to the Todah sacrifice. They're both basically... uh, Species of the same genus, if you were to to follow Leviticus, how it works through. Again, very interesting, but probably no time for that. And the Passover has a really unique flavor of sacrifice. First off, it's offered with a lamb. And so we see in the beginning of John, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see in Revelation, behold, the lamb who was slain since before the foundation of the earth. The Yom Kippur sacrifice is with a goat, it is not with a lamb. Uh, There is no sin offering that is done with a lamb. So there's this kind of interesting converging of of sacrificial rites, if you will. Further, the Yom or pardon me, the yes, the Yom sacrifice does not offer anything like eternal life. It does not spare you from death. It doesn't do any of that. That's the Passover. You think of the Passover, you're passed over by uh, the 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 final plague, uh, the the angel of death, uh, the angel of God, depending on how you want to translate and understand that. Uh, that's what gives you sparing from from death, not what Christ is doing in the temple. And so in John, the, the Eucharist, I, I do read John to have an institution of the Eucharist, and that's a whole nother issue. Uh, some people are a little iffy on that because he doesn't say the words of institution there, but I think it's, it's very clearly there. Nonetheless, in John, everything that is framed as, as sparing from death you know, you you must eat my body and drink my blood. It's this idea that uh, in doing so, we will not taste death. That's really weird if you think of Christ's work as only a sin offering because those are just disconnected things. It makes a lot of sense if you understand that there are multiple sacrifices come on. concurrently. Some of those we do not need to think about it anymore. Like the day of atonement sacrifice, what Christ has done, we don't need to offer forgiveness or offer more sin offerings for our our sins. Uh, He has done that and he ties that to the present by continuing to intercede for us. But uh, we do need to offer praise and thanksgiving. And in the eschaton, when we have the marriage supper of the lamb, we do need something that is going to provide a full sparing of uh, us from death. And I think that that you tie the last supper to the eschaton, you understand that, okay, there's also a, passover going on so it's this huge convergence of this really complex ritual system where christ basically takes all these little things and he connects them to his body and his blood and he makes it one really uh, amazing sacrifice in which we can take it, complete it etc
1: et yeah that's that's so fascinating <laughs> how that all converges there and i think this leads well into the idea of metaphysics because now we're talking about Christ's body, not just in the heavenly holy of holies, but we've got Christ's body in the Eucharist, but you're also talking about tying multiple sacrifices all into this idea of Christ's body and blood, which makes it seem like Christ's body is in a whole lot of places doing a whole lot of things, which is I think where we get into some interesting metaphysical questions. And so what you kind of label out and, Uh, Work that you were kind enough to share with me a a couple of like problems that transubstantiation either seeks to solve or kind of Creates in solving other problems Um, And so one of these problems is like this two places problem Which I think would be a helpful place to start because I think it's gonna be very I don't in some ways concrete for people like it's it's a problem. They might have thought about before and so if we're gonna talk about Christ's body and the heavenly holy of holies and then we're gonna talk about Christ's body being present on the altar in churches for the Eucharist, and how this body is being tied into all these sacrifices. How do we kind of solve this question of, like, how can one body be extended into multiple places? Is that a fair way of that's a,
0: summing up the problem? And then I'm fascinated. That's, yeah, to, yeah, that's a great way of summing up the problem. It's also worth recognizing, too, that... Uh, because of this, because of this view of sacrifice, I think it's very important that not only is Christ present, but Christ's body is present in these ways. And this is especially obvious if you look through Hebrews, the, one of the arguments that goes through there, one of the arguments that one of my supervisors has actually done considerable work in, in trying to present is that in Hebrews, Christ must be ascended because he must present his actual body, his identical body. And I think that's going to be a big question when you refer to uh, exactly what we're talking about. We want to talk not just about a body, but the very body that was born of Mary, the very body that hung and died on the cross. And it needs to, in some way, be identical to that because that is the gift that's being offered to the father. And so if you do not have an identical body to that, suddenly it's no longer one sacrifice that converges in all these different um, rituals, if you will. But it is a bunch of different sacrifices, which all involve like Christ. And so you have a lot of actually Protestants that try to say, oh, no, we believe in the, the real presence. We just don't believe in the real corporeal presence or the real bodily presence. And I start to get a little worried that maybe that's not enough if we're actually going to take the Eucharist to be doing something, even if that is just a Thanksgiving offering the content of that offering must be the body of Christ in some, some unique way, in order for us to follow the logic of Hebrews. And if we don't follow the logic of Hebrews, it seems like we don't also have an ascension. And so it, you go back and it starts becoming very concerning all of a sudden. So th- this brings up the, yeah, the two bodies problem or the two individuals problem. And in that it seems like uh, as the priest says, hocus enum corpus meum, this is my body, or this is truly my body. Uh, how can we say that that is the body of Christ and the body of Christ is somewhere locally in heaven? There are a few different solutions. Um, The Lutheran solution, as I read it, seems to be something like, well, to ascend to the Father means for him to become ubiquitous and so he becomes omnipresent in some way because the right hand of the Father is omnipresent and so he becomes present in everything and we just hold the Eucharist to be specific because of what it means to us. And I get really concerned about that because I think that means that Christ is not actually presenting his body. He's just presenting his presence to the right hand of the father. And again, Hebrews seems to fall apart if you do that. So then you have Calvin, who is the, I I started actually studying Calvin because I thought, oh, his model is really interesting. And I, I, I'll tip my cards a little bit. I think Calvin has a couple of competing models And he says that he's consistent all the time. But I I just, as you read him, you kind of think, I don't know. I think you've said a couple of different things here and there. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt a little bit, but I'm, I've read him a lot on this and he seems to want a couple of different models. But one of them seems to be something like this, that Christ is really far away over there and we are over here and the spirit joins those that way when we partake of one, we partake of both. And so you can think of two pictures that overlap. And as I eat one picture and a really weird image, uh, I, I somehow eat two. And he says, that's enough. Now he has a couple of different ways of framing this. Uh, and I think that they're a bit, um, sometimes a bit oversimplistic. Sometimes I think that's just not his interest in, in framing how it makes sense or works. And that's totally fine. Uh, but my concern, if that's the case, is a couple of different things. Uh, If it's true that Christ is way over there and we're over here and we partake of Christ really and truly, then that means that we're also reaching out and touching Christ in a very real way through faith. And the problem is he's still praying and interceding for us. And if he's still praying and interceding for us, he must maintain ritual purity, which means that he can't have contact with blood Uh, He can't have contact with people who have had sexual relations in the last 24 hours. He can't have contact with X, Y, Z. Not because those are sinful, but simply because he has to maintain that ritual purity. The worry is we know that people who have had the Eucharist, even in faith, have most certainly done so without ritual purity. So it seems like, oh, shoot, he is not ritually pure right now. And that would be a big issue in Hebrews. So that's a bit of my concern with Calvin is, uh oh, it seems like he's no longer able to do what he set out to do in that unique way, even though that he's presented his body once and for all, his prayers are no longer uh, at least following the very law that he is uh, going out and, and doing with this ritual in the first place. So that's, that's another problem. I think your question was, how do you solve this issue? So those are just further complications with that. Aquinas does something very important and interesting. And I can get, if you're interested, I can get into why Aquinas. But uh, he wants to say, in the tradition of Peter Lombard and uh, others who have come before him, that what is actually present is the substance of Christ's body and not his accidents. And so, by that, he means that he is an Aristotelian in a very uh, specific sense. And so he wants to say that all things are composed of substance and accidents. You have the 10 Aristotelian categories. Um, the first one, the really important one is substance. What a thing is uh, in, in its essence, basically what makes it what it is. So what makes this coffee cup actually a coffee cup? What makes this microphone actually a microphone? Um, people get a little squirmish, squeamish, I should say, with substance language now, but it's also becoming a bit more in vogue, interestingly enough. So uh, we can talk about some of those discussions. (laughs) There's a lot that we can talk about with this. And so Aquinas wants to say, okay, the substance changes. And the substance is composed of two things, the form and the matter. The form is simply uh, usually the the shape of something, the the essential features that it would need, uh, sometimes the place of something. the matter is a bit harder to understand because it's just what makes something material uh oftentimes this gets looked at in contemporary the contemporary age as uh the atoms of something but that's a bit of a misunderstanding uh it's not the atoms or the subatom, subatomic level of, of anything but it's it's really just the material nature of something so the difficulty is something like prime matter which is all matter that exists uh so much as it existed, it exists without form, if we could talk about it at all, and so it doesn't have anything like um, distance or shape or place or any of these things that we would normally associate with just like a big lump of Play-Doh or something like that. So it becomes very difficult to talk about uh, matter in that sense. But he wants to say, okay, so what happens is in in the Eucharist when the priest says hocus enum corpus meum, this is my body, the matter changes to be the exact matter of Christ's body. And so basically it is duplicated to be the exact matter of Christ's body. Now we wouldn't notice any difference in that because matter is matter, but Aquinas wants to say, and yet it is also a, a specific amount of matter. So it's minimally signed by a designation, which is identical to Christ's body uh now i realize i'm getting into really weird heady territory so i'm gonna i'm gonna back up in just a minute don't worry (laughs) and then the other thing that changes is that the form changes and so it becomes body uh very and truly body but it becomes body in the same way that we might paint a wall in a dark room white and so it's it's actually white but if you don't turn the light on you're not necessarily going to see the light and so although all of the uh the the form is there really and truly it is in such a way that it doesn't actually manifest and so aquinas can say things like well there is a uh, bodily extension but n- not extendedly and uh there is the color of christ but it's not there with color and you can you can do kind of all of these really really weird wacko bizarre things that people point back to and they say aquinas what are you doing okay that was that was a lot um I'm wanting to backtrack a little bit on matter to make more sense of that because I don't think it makes any sense But I want to give you a moment Austin and say, hey, what's up for this?
1: Yeah, I think backtracking on matter could be helpful there. I think I think you preempted what people might think and certainly have thought of mm-hmm. Like Aquinas, are you just saying things that sound smart? <laughs> um, specifically, I guess one of the questions I would have to follow up on that that maybe will help clarify, maybe will not is when you say it's like painting a wall white in a dark room it's white but without the light turned on you, you don't know it's there does that mean that our lack of recognition of the the form and matter of christ and the eucharist is a matter of our perception like is is that the the gap there does that make sense with the the light analogy and if i'm pressing that too sure far, um,
0: not at all you have to be careful with the light analogy too of course because white is an accident and none of christ's accidents are there in a way <laughs> uh aquinas also wants to say that Christ's uh, body blood soul and divinity are present in, in the elements and this is really good if you want to have a high view of sacrifice you want all those things present uh but he he wants to say that they are present uh through a natural concomitants and uh that's probably going to be just too much to get there so we're going to focus on what we have so the light analogy is a really good one and there's really good answers for this in Aquinas. until uh, if, if anyone wants to uh, ask me further on that, go into it. But it's probably a bit much for this interview. Uh, the other question that's worth examining, pardon me, I'm bumping things over here, is the question of uh, how is it that Christ's matter and what does it even mean for Christ's matter to be present in the elements, right? Because again, as I as I started to describe matter, it's as if. Uh, we could talk about a material thing that doesn't have extension, that doesn't have uh, any color, that doesn't have any form, that doesn't have any accidents to it. It has nothing to it. It's very to talk about. And so, in order to make sense of this, uh, Aquinas first takes a question of what does it mean for a thing to be identical with itself. Uh, and this is this is not a question, but I have a bit of a thought experiment that I think helps get down to the the essence. If we can imagine that the the Eiffel Tower in Las Vegas and the Eiffel Tower in Paris were exactly the same, the same color, same shape, same size. Let's even say they were made at the exact same time. The only thing that would be different from these was the place of the object. Now, we can imagine that God would just swap those two so that the tower which was in Las Vegas is now in Paris and the tower that is in Paris is in Las Vegas. But the question is, now the only thing that was separating the two, which was place, is no longer the same. So how are these two towers any different now? How is it that God actually switched one with the other? And what Aquinas would say is, he would say, well, the matter that made up this tower moved over here. And so it's the the designated matter, the, the shaped matter, if you will. Uh, matter minimally signed by just a, uh, a quantity, which has moved, and because that's moved, that's and that's the same way of thinking of this lump of metal has switched with this lump of metal, and I think that seems kind of intuitively right when you think about it like that. Now, what Aquinas wants to say, what happens with Christ's matter in the Eucharist, is that if you were to imagine that we quantify all matter, so it's no longer prime matter that we're talking about, we're quantifying it and we roll it out on a sheet of. Uh, as a sheet of dough on a table. We take a cookie cutter and cut out a Christmas tree. Now, suddenly, we have uh, a form, the Christmas tree-shaped cookie dough, applied to the matter. And we can not only take the Christmas tree-shaped cookie dough uh, and have like a little Christmas tree here, but we're also going to have its imprint on the table, where it came from in the designated matter, if you will. And so what Christ, what happens to Christ's body is that his matter basically comes to be replicated so that both the body which is in heaven and the body which is on the altar come from the same hole in the cookie dough uh, cutter example and so both of them i can say oh this is this is where that matter came from and so now the two in essence are not actually two but they're one identical thing uh, even though we could have one over here and one over here importantly I can touch the second bit of Christ, which is very truly his body and is identical to the one that was born of Mary because it was replicated in the Eucharist. And I could do so without contaminating or uh, de, uh, making the other one impure, ritually speaking, uh, because the two no longer are going to have the same type of history. That's what becomes really important. Um, And again, I'm I'm aware that we're going through a little bit of heavy terminology here, too. So if if that caused another question to come up, and I'm sure it caused a few, please.
1: You used the cookie cutter analogy in one of the pieces you sent me, and I think it's a really interesting one. I think a question that might pop up on people's minds would be, so if we have one cookie cut, like there's the the form, right, the imprint on the table, you know, you can can look at both of them. Um, And the Eucharist, are we doing that, you know? over and over and over again like each time it's consecrated and is christ matter such that it runs out or is that the point of prime matter there that like no matter how many cookie cuts you get does that make sense because i i've heard kind of at the pop level of people talking about the eucharist like if there's like a little bit of christ's body in each one of these when does his body
0: mm-hmm. run out kind of question um you
1: so if we apply that you to actually cookie have cutter,
0: cuts. You have some some Muslim apologists around the time of Aquinas who are saying something. Even if Christ's body was the size of a mountain, very truly, if he was present in the Eucharist, he would have been eaten all up by now. And I think that's a, a funny objection, but it's one that kind of misses the point a little bit, because uh, there's a couple of distinctions that would that are very uh, important to Aquinas. One is that, insofar that his body is present in any um, any bit of the matter or the, the, the matter becomes entirely uh identical with his body, he is present holy. And so it's a different type of presence than one might have. Uh currently, as I'm sitting right here, uh, you know, I have my finger right here, that is present uh in, in the way of a finger. So part of me is present right here, but it's a different part of me that's present right here on my nose. For Christ's presence in the Eucharist, he's present holy in every way. And so similar to if you have a little bit of water and you drink this bit of water, you're not drinking a part of the water that is unique to the part of the uh, the water over here. They're both H2O at their their fundamental core. Um, So that's kind of one, one distinction. Every piece of the Eucharistic host is identical to the whole of Christ's body. And that's different than how he's presenting himself to the Father. And so Aquinas uses the example of if you break the host, it's not as if you have two halves of a meat which is Christ's body or pardon me, two halves of a picture which is Christ's body but you have two halves of a mirror and now you would see Christ's body fully on one and fully on the other uh, so that's that's a bit of a distinction for how Christ is present in the Eucharist the important thing for saying that the matter duplicates to become the matter of Christ's body is simply that it shares the identity of Christ's body in doing so so Keep in mind that the duplicated matter is not, technically speaking, the matter of Christ's body, but it is just simply the identical matter of Christ. And the form which changes is the form of body, not the form of Christ's body, not the form of Christ's blood, the form of body. When you put the matter and the form together, now you have the form of Christ's body and the matter which is identical to Christ. So now it shares the same identity. Uh, Now, of course you have the difficulty of the fact that Christ's accidents are not present. And so you have to kind of address all of those too. And what what, what Aquinas wants to say is that the accidents, the bread and the wine cease to have a substance. They no longer have form and matter because the form and matter has been transformed, but their accidents continue to adhere in a subject one interpretation. You could also say their accidents continue to hear in a thing that's like a subject, which is the dimensive quantity. And that is just simply the amount of extension that the bread and the wine have. Uh, that's what the accidents, which would include things like the glutenness and the calories and the intoxicating ability, all of that would continue to exist in the elements. There's there's so much here, and I can see how there's
1: more than enough to do a PhD dissertation. Yeah. Much less. <laughs> there's a couple an of PhD dissertations
0: on long yeah.
1: interview. I think that's a really helpful place to maybe begin wrapping up the kind of heady metaphysical conversation there, and to to land the plane. I want to bring this back to a place that even if people might say like I feel like I got a little lost in there, that that I think is going to be helpful for them. So bringing this back to the idea of the atonement, right, which is mm-hmm. I think something that is in every christian life whether we think of it in that theological category right of atonement it's it's at the essence of the christian life it's something that is in the the core of your liturgical expression or your relationship with christ like no matter where you are on the the christian spectrum or any area within the christian life it's going to have elements of this idea whether you call it by that term or not which is essentially how we are made one with christ how we find salvation in christ and so given what we've talked about the idea of sacrifice in the eucharist not the yom kippur sacrifice but bringing together the rest of these sacrifices in this really interesting way and then we have Mm -hmm. the the essential quality of christ's body tying these sacrifices together in the eucharist and this um Allowing sacrifice and it being a duplication of the very matter which was uh, born from the Virgin Mary. How does this then inform, big question I know, but how we think of this idea of atonement, right? Like, yeah. Because I what I want to do is take this from a conversation of like, wow, we, we discovered some like really interesting philosophical ideas about the Eucharist, which is good in itself. But what does this tell us about how we are made one
0: with Christ? Sure. This is, this is a really good question. And this is part of the reason that I find Aquinas so interesting. I think that his, his metaphysical work actually doesn't come from a place of just simply trying to solve problems. He was someone that was known to be incredibly uh, devout uh, as it related to partaking of the elements, especially as it related to adoration of the elements, uh, which for, for all of us Protestants out here, uh, it refers to coming and uh to a place where the the elements are consecrated and uh worshiping so that was really big for aquinas in fact some of the last stories that we hear from him just before his death and and part of his last writings were about the eucharist and transubstantiation some of the last stories we hear from him are particularly of his relationship with coming before christ in the elements uh, so all of that's a really helpful framework of saying that, that this is this is actually in a sense rooted around uh, adoration in a sense that some Christians would be uncomfortable with to be to be fair but in a sense that is important to see that this is not just metaphysically heavy stuff but this is actually asking okay I know that Christ is here and I want to say that He's here really and truly to the fullest extent but I also have this sense experience that I'm trying to grapple with and how can these be the same at the same time? And I think his answer is really profound and one that is inspired primarily by worship. Okay. So with that background, how do we connect this with atonement? Um, again, as I hinted at a little bit earlier, I think it's important to see that when we commune with Christ, we want to do so in a way that is entirely appropriate for partaking of a sacrifice, offering a sacrifice to the father, um, doing so in a way that is connected to what has come before us. And yet there are some qualifications of that. Like I said, Christ must maintain his ritual purity. And that just creates some problems. And so we could either throw our hands up and say, it is a mystery. And I do think that the Eucharist at its core is a mystery. But typically the way that Christians have have dealt with that is they say, it's a mystery. Great. How can we further worship? How can we go into this deeper? Uh, you know what if you are the most uh, strict transubstantiationist you will still end up coming away being like wow this is a crazy mystery even though you have this wild system behind you it doesn't get rid of that mystery it's still very impressive what is happening but what I think Aquinas was concerned about is he was concerned about people walking away and saying oh it's a mystery Christ is somehow very truly present yada 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 and he wanted to emphasize, no, 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 no. no. This is his body. Uh, this isn't just his body. This is the same body that was on the cross. This is the same body that was uh, that is united to his divinity. the The creator of the world is present with us as we stand or kneel and have uh, it put on our tongues, or we put it on our tongues. Like that is absolutely incredible. And so, what I think that ends up doing is it heightens our sense of worship when we dig into this a little bit. It heightens our recognition of in in a a holy and true way, like, oh my God, here you are. Uh, So I I think that is a really helpful framework to begin entering the conversation or even just remind ourselves after we've been in the conversation for a while and say, this is not just about having a neat metaphysic, uh, but it is about coming away from this and saying, How is it this can spur me to worship further? And I think that for myself, at least, the further that I've contemplated this, the more that I have come to a point of um, very, it's been a terrifyingly humbling experience because it's constantly reminding me of what it means that Christ became incarnate and what it means that he is giving himself to his bride. To go back to what we talked about at the very beginning, and I think it's quite astounding. Um, that's that's all I'll say for right now.
1: I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up here. I think that I love the way you described the the theological journey, if you will, of investigating this that it hasn't it wasn't just for Aquinas and nor has it been for you merely a way of kind of satisfying an intellectual curiosity. Although, I mean, it, it certainly is satisfying intellectually, right? But there's this element that I think all good theology should have to it, that the further we press into that mystery, the the more it spurs worship in us, and that that humbling, that, that awe of who God is. I, I think, you know, if, if people got nothing else, then to know that that is that is the, the path of the theologian, that is the, the posture of the theologian, I think that's a beautiful place to, to end up, and I think, you know, nothing more perhaps should do that than our contemplation of the Eucharist. So, Cody, thank you so much, this has been such a pleasure, um, I have enjoyed it thoroughly, and again, to be joined by a Moody grad, extra special in that we'll wrap up as we always do here on the channel with what I call the final four, they're kind of four rapid fire questions, if you will, that just let people get to know the guest on a little bit um, more personal level, as we can tend to have a bit abstract conversations, and this is certainly one of them. So question number one is, what has been the most fruitful habit or spiritual discipline in your life?
0: I would say uh, a series of them, but all related to trying to slow down or or notice where I'm at a little bit more. So oftentimes I turn off any music when I'm praying. Uh, I'll have icons kind of around my room to keep me slow and and remind me of what i'm doing as i'm working um praying usually with things that are tactile uh so physical things that will ground me usually in the spiritual practices that i'm doing
1: i love that in our hurried and busy world i think things that slow us down in our spiritual life are oh so important outside the bible what has been the most impactful book
0: on your life probably uh the incarnation by uh marcus johnson actually uh which was the book that i read in that one class uh, with my wife right before we got married and the very last chapter is on marriage uh it was one of those books that i i read not fully realizing how much it would impact me uh and yet it continued to chip away at a lot of misunderstandings that i had about uh, who christ is and what it means for him to be incarnate and I would say that without that book, I don't know if I would be on the same trajectory that I'm here. I don't know if Dr. Johnson would appreciate that, but, <laughs> but it's true.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. And I can only sing the praises of that book as well. I'll go ahead and, if I remember, link it in the description down <laughs> below. Um, and I believe it's, it's co-authored by uh, Dr. Clark, so I'll give him a shout out as well. Yeah. Um, but all right, uh, number three, you go back in time and you're having coffee with yourself when you first go to Moody. What's one piece of advice you give him for his future in theology, not just at Moody, but throughout your journey
0: and maybe even ahead? Sure. Well, it'd be very weird for when I was at Moody, I actually studied linguistics. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I obviously did some theology because you have to when I was there. So I would be very surprised at where I was going uh, right now. But I would also. It's hard because I was told so often when I was an undergrad to know that you don't know very much, but I still only took that so seriously. I would have gone to a professor that I really respected, or maybe someone that I really respect and told them to pick out a professor that they really respect and asked them, how do you immerse yourself in the world of theology? Because as a new student, there were things that I could have been doing that would have been very helpful, like studying the patristics earlier and getting uh, acquainted with Latin at the same time that I was just working on Greek and understanding church history from multiple perspectives and angles. All of these things would have been very helpful to start out with, but I think I needed a guide and I just didn't have a lot of people that I was willing to ask because I thought I knew too much, so.
1: What great advice. Yeah, there's nothing more dangerous than a uh, Bible college student with about one semester under his belt that uh, suddenly realizes (laughs) he knows more than anybody ever. Um, That's always a fun, fun journey. Um, All right, last question. This channel is named Gospel Simplicity, and it's often pointed out that the conversations can be a bit on the complex side, which Mm -hmm. today was no exception. In one sentence, though, what is the
0: gospel? Christ has come. I think, I think to get nerdy on languages, that's that's important to keep the is there. Uh, that it's not just that he has come, uh, but that he, the effects of his coming are still present. I love it.
1: That is one of the most succinct answers I've ever gotten to that question. So points for that. Cody, thanks so much for joining me here today. Pleasure. And thanks to all of you who watch this video sometime in the future. I don't take your time lightly. And until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. But as always, go out and love God and love others. Because truly, above all else, that will change the world.